After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins, and so that you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double draught for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart, she says, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Therefore, her plagues will come on a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of Gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves and even human lives. The fruit for which your soul longed had gone from you, and all your dainties and your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city clothed in the fine linen in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in one hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafarers, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in one hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So another fun passage this morning. It's good stuff. Uh, So remember, we're uh, plugging away at our sermon series, Revelation for Not Crazy People. And I like that at least one person still laughed. I love it. Okay. Um, 
And remember, during this sermon series, we're walking through this final book of the Bible, and, which has such a fraught existence, and it has all this weird imagery and weird metaphors and all this stuff. And we need to try and figure out what can we do to get at the power that is latent in this book that's wrapped up in here, and especially because especially throughout history, especially oppressed peoples have found a lot of power in this book. They've found it speaking to their lives and their context. And so think about, for example, black South Africans in apartheid or, or slaves in the antebellum South. And for both of these, this, this work, this book, has helped them think about that oppression theologically to process what they've been going through. And, and that is relevant for today's passage because we're finishing up chapters 17 and 18 today of Revelation, which tie a whole lot into that question of oppression and exploitation. They've been this rich fodder for those on the underside of history trying to figure out how to make sense of their situation. So remember, for the last two weeks, we've been looking at these figures in these chapters and we have these highly symbolic characters. We have uh, a beast. One of them is a beast. And then riding on top of that beast is a prostitute. And these both stand in for Babylon. And remember, anytime we hear the word Babylon, John is referring to what? Rome. Rome. Very good. So we've been depicting Rome as a beast and a whore But then we saw the beast and the kings of all the nations of all the earth turn on the woman and kill her and burn her body. And this week we look at the aftermath of that because remember, the woman stands in for Babylon slash Rome. So she is destroyed. And then we see these kings wailing and lamenting, which is ironic, is it not? Because they just killed her. Um, But now they're lamenting the loss of such a great city. It has fallen. But, But notice, too, they stand back at a safe distance, not actually getting close enough to get caught in the crossfire. These kings of other territories were so eager to subject themselves to Roman rule, but to benefit from the kings, from the um, empire's glory, but all of a sudden are not so eager to participate and be in the middle of God's judgment when it is poured out on Babylon slash Rome. And then having heard from the kings, it's now the merchants' turn. And to think about merchants... We need to think about economics. And to think about economics, we need to think about money. So, very simple, straightforward first question. What is money? Yeah. Um, As I said, real straightforward. Because it's not just, right, it's not just a sheet of paper or or this uh, hunk of metal, right? Ultimately, it's not these things, because what, what is it? This is like some cotton and linen, some sort of magic blend and with ink on it, right? It's just a piece of paper. And what, what's this coin? It's this flattened hunk of metal that's been made into a circle, right? It's, that itself is not what money is. 
Money is, at its core, a social contract, a promise, an agreement, because basically everybody agrees together this piece of paper, we're going to have it be worth something. And so if you have enough of these somethings, then you can exchange them for something real. And then the person who sold them, once they get enough of those somethings, can exchange them for something real, and so on and so forth, right? And everybody's agreeing together that this little piece of paper is worth something, in this case, one dollar. But, but even something like gold, right, that we, that we think, oh, that's valuable, right? Eh, kind of, but, it just, but not intrinsically. It just happens to be this shiny, pretty hunk of metal that I want, and so we agree that it's valuable. And so we agree that it's worth more than, say, a hunk of aluminum. There's nothing intrinsically about this gold that makes it valuable. It's valuable because of our social relationship, because, of, because I want it and am willing to trade for it and trade a lot for it. So at its root, when we're talking about economics, what we're talking about is not fundamentally laffer curves or GDP. We're, we're at the root underlying it all. We're talking about relationship. Relationships between me and another. Relationships between me and multiple others. Uh, society, say. Economics is fundamentally relationship. And so with that under our belt... <clears throat> Let us return back to the merchants in our story. Remember, Babylon slash Rome has been destroyed, is going up in smoke, and the kings, uh, like the kings, the merchants too, are standing off at a distance so they don't get caught in the crossfire. And they wail, they lament, because Rome is gone. They say, we got so much money from Rome, we got rich off of her. The source of our wealth is gone, and we're stuck with these ships of cargo that we can no longer sell. We're no longer going to be rich. And notice what kinds of things were on these cargo ships. That big long list in the middle of the passage, right? But in that big long list, are those items that the average Joe is going to buy? For the most part, with a few notable exceptions, no. You've got luxury items for the elites. You've got precious metals and fine wood and marble and expensive cloths. Because if you're a merchant, how do you make the most money? Right? You trade in luxury goods. I mean, you, we see this all over the place, right? Dollar Tree does not have as high profit margin as Nordstrom, right? Right? Or... or there's a reason that everybody, all the developers in Seattle are building luxury apartments rather than Section 8 housing, right? Right. You make the most profit selling luxury goods to the elites. And so with Rome destroyed, these merchants can no longer do that and get rich quick and easy. And then, and then notice what's tacked on to the end of this list of merchandise. At the end of it, John adds, and slaves, even human lives. One of the things that made these merchants wealthy was trading in human beings 
to these merchants, these slaves, like everything else on the list, were simply merchandise to be bought and sold. And John wants to make sure we don't miss this point because he adds on and even human lives because you could pretend that slaves are merchandise, but you can't claim that human lives are. And so for John, it, this, the literal dehumanization of individuals fits, fits right along with John's contempt for all these luxury items that are on those cargo ships because, um, because what Rome was was called an extractive economy. And so uh, there were all these colonies, provinces that Rome had conquered, right? And so all of their best stuff, their gold, their silver, their timber was extracted back to Rome for, you guessed it, the benefits of largely the elite, the wealthy, the powerful. And um, as time went on, you may have heard this story somewhere before, the wealth got more and more concentrated, leading to this giant gap between the wealthy who were living fabulously and the masses who were getting poorer. I don't know why that sounds familiar, But the wealthy were getting rich, buying, you guessed it, gold, silver, ivory, slaves, the very stuff that's on these merchant ships. That's that's what you happen when that's what happens when you see the world as just this medium for extracting resources for your own benefit, no matter who it harms. And what does John say about it? God is not okay with that. Because what what did we say? Money is fundamentally relationship. And so for these merchants in the slave trade, they are explicitly violating relationship. They are not allowing this enslaved person to be a person so that they can get rich off of them. Or extracting the resources, say the the results of the harvest from the poor farmer for the benefit of these elite dinner parties. And it's saying, my comfort is worth more than you being able to eat. It's this whole economic system that Babylon slash Rome had. The whole thing is a relational violation. And John says, under God's reign, it will all be destroyed And that's one of the reasons why, as we noted at the beginning, oppressed peoples have especially glommed on to these chapters. They've seen from the underside, from the the belly of the beast, what exploitative economic relationships look like. They've, about how they've been harmed by others severing relationships with them uh, in favor of their own gain. And for many of these oppressed folks, it resonates because they've seen these relationships break down. But through this book, they are reminded that this exploitation is evil and that God will not stand for it. And so because economics is all about relationships, we, we see why, how we practice our economics is a deeply moral, ethical issue. It is, or at least ought to be, central and core to, to how we understand ourselves relating to the world as ethical beings.
things. And it needs to be thinking about how our everyday economic relationships with others have ethical importance. But in the way that we as Americans have structured our everyday lives, we fall into this trap far too often. We make these decisions about what we purchase, about what we spend our money on, what we do, and we don't always think through these moral, ethical implications of it. Uh, because if we were taking John seriously, what, what economic behaviors would be antithetical to God? Exploitation? Objectification? Using others as means to an end? Worldviews that see us in competition rather than cooperation? All of these destroy the relationship between people. All of these are moral issues. And part of the trouble in our particular society is that we've made so many of these relationships invisible and tucked them away, especially in the supply chain, and so that we're no longer conscious of much of the damage that we're doing. Like, I, I try really hard not to exploit my employees, just in general, general policy. But once it's hidden out of my sight, I have way less of a problem with buying tomatoes or my iPhone or my shirt. And, and, and exploitation is just one particular example, but the whole of our economic lives is what we need to be reflecting on and filtering through this lens of faith because how we participate in the world is a deeply ethical issue. Our ethics must inform how we interact with others so that we can move in the gospel direction of more fully interconnected relationships rather than of fracturing relationships for our own benefit. So, in your everyday life, along with many other ways that you do so, may the ways that you relate with others economically, through economic relationships, may that be life-giving and bring all parties into closer interconnectedness. May it be so.